It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Saturday, September 21st, 2019. On this day in 1976, exiled Chilean diplomat Orlando Letelier was assassinated by a car bomb. Many suspected that Augusto Pinochet, then dictator of Chile, had ordered the hit. It wasn't until 2015 that declassified documents not only confirmed Pinochet's involvement, but revealed that the CIA knew he was responsible for decades. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today we're covering the assassination of 44-year-old former diplomat Orlando Letelier. Orlando was a protege of Salvador Allende, the first democratically elected socialist president of Chile. In 1973, Allende was overthrown in a military coup led by Augusto Pinochet. Orlando managed to escape Chile after the regime change, but his outspoken criticism of Pinochet put a target on his back. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Before we unpack the ramifications of Orlando Letelier's assassination, let's go back to the morning of September 21, 1976, around 9.15 in the morning. As Michael Moffat sat in the back seat of the Chevelle, he could feel the sweat seeping through his dress shirt. Even though it was late September, Washington, D.C. was still shrouded in a thick soup of humidity. Michael shifted in the back seat, trying to catch some of the air conditioning coming out of the car's front vents. He hated having pit stains. His wife, Ronnie, was in the passenger seat, chatting with their friend and colleague, Orlando Letelier. He'd loaned the Moffats his Chevelle for the past few days, while their own car was at the mechanic. All he asked was that they pick him up for work in the morning. The gesture was typical of Orlando, equally practical and generous. But when they got to his house, Orlando assumed the driver's seat and relegated Michael to the sweltering back seat. Michael resisted the urge to loosen his tie and unbutton his collar. They'd reached the office in less than 10 minutes. Michael thought about the blasting AC waiting for him in his office. He nearly drooled. As they headed down Massachusetts Avenue, Ronnie perked up. What happened to Juan? Michael suddenly realized how far down the street they were, already on Embassy Row, where most of the world's American consulates sat. They were supposed to stop back at Wisconsin Avenue. But Orlando waved off their concern and kept driving. 
change of plans. Juan was coming in later today, making sure the kids got off to school while his wife went to the market. It was clear Orlando was slightly annoyed by their colleague's delay. Juan was working on a response piece Orlando wanted to publish in the newspaper. He wanted to read it as soon as possible. A few weeks earlier, the Chilean government, led by Augusto Pinochet, had publicly stripped Orlando of his citizenship over his scathing criticisms of the dictatorship. When Pinochet assumed control in a military coup nearly three years prior, he ousted Orlando's boss and mentor, Salvadore Allende. Since the coup, Pinochet continued to purge any dissidents and political opponents Orlando included. Michael had seen his scars, heard pieces of his stories. Pinochet held Orlando and his family in different prison camps for a year after he assumed control. Orlando managed to escape to the U.S. and had spent every day since calling out the brutality of the new government. Michael couldn't help but admire his bravery. He could have started a new, quiet life in America, just grateful to be alive at all. But Orlando continued his fight, continued serving the country he loved, no matter the target it put on his back. As they passed by the Romanian embassy on Sheridan Circle, Michael heard a strange buzzing sound, and then... In a blinding flash, a bomb detonated. The explosion tore through the Chevelle, launching it into the air. It careened into a Volkswagen parked in front of the Irish embassy. Michael, in shock but miraculously unharmed, stumbled out of the back of the car. He struggled to breathe in the smoke-filled air. A few moments later, Ronnie climbed out of the passenger door. Thank God, Michael thought. She's okay, too. But as soon as Michael saw the damage to the driver's seat, any sense of hope for his friend evaporated. He rushed to the hole where the driver's door used to be. He passed by a left foot lying on the pavement. Clumps of bloodied seat stuffing littered the ground. Orlando sat on the front seat, his head lolling back and forth. The bomb had torn both his legs off just above the knee. He looked like a broken doll. He mumbled something, barely above a whisper. Michael leaned in closer, trying to understand. There was so much blood. Flooded with grief, Michael stepped back from the still smoldering car. He screamed, enraged, assassins, fascists. Orlando's eyelids fluttered. He would be gone soon. Coming up, the impact of Orlando Letelier's death and the exposure it brought to Operation Condor. Now back to the story. On the morning of September 21st, 1976, 44-year-old Orlando Letelier was killed by a car bomb planted by agents of the Chilean secret police. Orlando was extremely outspoken about the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. He had helped push for legislation banning the sale of U.S. arms to Chile. He'd blocked foreign countries from investing in Chilean industry. Therefore, 
Pinochet silenced him. When investigators examined the blasted wreckage, they quickly located a homemade bomb. It consisted of a nine-inch metal cake tin stuffed with C4 explosive taped to the underside of the Chevelle directly under the driver's seat. Also in the car that day were Ronnie and Michael Moffat, newlyweds who worked with Orlando at the Institute for Policy Studies, a left-wing think tank. While Michael survived, Ronnie ultimately succumbed to her injuries. A piece of shrapnel had severed her windpipe and carotid artery. She eventually suffocated from the blood. Immediately, Pinochet and the Chilean government were blamed for the assassination. Two other critics living in exile, Bernardo Leighton and Carlos Prats Gonzalez, had also been attacked by agents of the Chilean secret police, the National Intelligence Directorate, or DINA. Orlando's supporters felt certain that DINA was connected to his death as well. In the months leading up to the bombing, he had received many death threats, but felt that he was safe in the U.S. Orlando told a co-worker, they would never dare to attack me in Washington. If they want to attack me, they'll wait for me to be in Europe. Indeed, an attack like this, carried out in the nation's capital on the orders of an ally nation, was unheard of, unthinkable. This is perhaps why the FBI released an official statement two days after the attack, disavowing the rumors of Pinochet's direct involvement. Instead, their investigation led them to American-born expatriate Michael Townley. He moved to Chile in 1973, before the Pinochet coup, and in 1974 joined the DINA, working for them as a spy. With their help, he traveled to D.C. in September of 1976 to carry out Orlando Letelier's assassination. Assisting him were five anti-Castro Cuban Americans. On the day of the bombing, they trailed behind Orlando's Chevelle, then waited for the right moment to detonate. In the end, Townley made a plea deal with the FBI, 10 years in prison in exchange for testimony against his co-conspirators. He completed just a little over five years of that sentence, then was released into the Federal Witness Protection Program. Three of the Cubans went on trial in January of 1979. All were found guilty, but the ruling was overturned on appeal. In the end, they went free. Michael Moffat wrote of the attack, for approximately five years following the bombing, my life was a living hell, marked by total preoccupation with the bombing, sleeplessness, crying, and alcohol abuse. To this day, I'm still plagued by the persistent memory of the horror and find that much of my life is occupied with efforts to avoid any situation which might rekindle the pain. Orlando Letelier's death was only one in a decade-long campaign of violence against political dissidents and intimidation of critics in Chile called Operation Condor. Journalist Branko Marcetic described the overall effect of the program on the people of Chile in an article for Jacobin magazine. He wrote, 
The repression created climates of fear that served to foster silence and self-censorship, stifle political activities on the left, and largely destroy meaningful political resistance. Perhaps the most troubling question about Orlando Letelier's death is whether or not the U.S. government participated in the assassination. In early September of 1976, CIA Director Henry Kissinger expressed concerns over plans for the assassination of subversives, politicians, and prominent figures both within the national borders of certain southern cone countries and abroad. But on September 16th, five days before Orlando's death, the warning was rescinded. Kissinger tacitly ordered that business should continue as usual. Journalist Peter Kornblue wrote in a September 2000 article about the link between the CIA and the head of DINA, Manuel Contreras Sepulveda. Kornblue said in a declassified report provided to Congress on September 18th, titled CIA Activities in Chile, the agency confirms what so many have long suspected. At the height of the Pinochet regime's repression, the head of Chile's infamous secret police, the DINA, was put on the CIA payroll. When Dina carried out missions on U.S. soil, including the assassination of Orlando Letelier, they paid their operatives in U.S. dollars drawn from their CIA-funded account. And it was all done in the name of preserving democracy. Even though Pinochet was a dictator, his official title was president. This placed him on the right side of the Cold War because he had liberated Chile from the evil clutches of a communist-leaning government. Kissinger said after socialist president Salvador Allende's election, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist because of the irresponsibility of its own people. Therefore, the United States considered Chile and Pinochet allies, no matter the tactics he used to secure his power. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Today in True Crime for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carrie Murphy, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime.